You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. So now I would like to invite our wonderful preacher here this morning, Mr. Ingold. <laughs> Come to share a wonderful message with us. Um, before Ian preaches, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the word that Ian has for us this morning. I pray that uh, we would eat hungrily from it this morning and we would take away a a lot about you and about your desires and your uh, discipline for us at this time. Would you grow us, would you encourage us and would you speak all that we need to hear through Ian this morning. We thank you for Ian, we thank you for the wonderful teacher that he is um, and we look forward to a wonderful sermon this morning, Lord God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Um, Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 if you've brought them with you or you've got electronic versions. Um, These lights on please, Mike. Romans 12 verse 1, you're all familiar with this I'm sure. Therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship. So what's your first thing you think of when I mention the word worship? We all know what worship is, don't we? We all know that when we come to church on a Sunday morning and sing songs to God and sing songs about God, that's worship, yes? And uh, I suspect that's the answer that the vast majority of Christians would give to that question, but it's only actually a small part of worship, although it will actually be the major part of what I talk about this morning. If that was your answer, don't feel too bad, for we've been conditioned over generations to think of worship primarily in terms of our congregational singing on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening, whenever happens to be that your church meets. But singing our praises to God when we gather on Sundays is a part of worship, it's an important part of worship, but it's only a part. It's not the totality of worship. I'm sure you've heard the old explanation of worship as worth-ship. Worth-ship, ascribing worth and value to something. By that definition, when we open our church service by singing, as we have this morning, about the great works of God in creation or the amazing grace that's extended to us in Jesus Christ or the way the Holy Spirit brings about new life when we're born again, we're ascribing honour and glory and value to God. We're recognising worthship in God. We are worshipping him. Of course, we can just be going through the motions. Just because we're singing doesn't mean we are actually worshipping. We might be bored by what we're singing. We could be unmoved, untouched, disinterested by what we're singing. We may be doing it because that's what's expected when you go to church, is to sing. If that was the case, that would be tragic. And it wouldn't be worship 
no matter how loudly you sang, it still wouldn't be worship. It would mean either that we have forgotten our first love and need to get back to him, or maybe it means that we have not yet met our first love. And so the words, the songs we're singing are meaningless to us. Did you realise that gathering together as a body of believers to sing songs to God is an almost exclusively Christian practice? I'm not aware of any other religion or any other movement that gathers together on a weekly basis to sing songs together to God. It's a bit of an odd practice, don't you think? When you, when you think about it in those terms, it is. You don't go to work and gather together with your workmates and sing songs. You might if you're down the pub on a Friday night half-tanked, but you, you don't do it as part of your regular practice at work or with your family or anywhere, really. And you only sing at the football if your team wins. You don't sing songs to God. You sing about how good your team is. A bloke by the name of Matt Boswell wrote a book called Doxology and Theology. And he said, When the church is gathered together in the name of God, only singing which glorifies him is appropriate. We don't sing corporately because it's our idea. We sing because it's God's idea for his people. And since it is God who has commanded us to sing, it is God who will also determine what kind of songs we will sing. We are to sing to him and for him. Our songs are not meant to be entertainment or a distraction from God. Singing to the Lord is a practice that goes back thousands of years, back into the Old Testament times. You remember after the Lord led the Israelites through the Red Sea and, and uh, into Sinai and he had drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, Miriam sang, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Exodus fifteen twenty. In King Jehoshaphat's time, when the enemy attacked Jerusalem, the king appointed singers to lead out the army. Now, imagine if our armies did that, went into battle with a choir leading the troops out. It would be so weird. But... King Jehoshaphat appointed singers to lead the army into battle. In Second Chronicles 20 this is, And they went out into battle singing, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the Lord overcame the enemy by the power of song. That's remarkable, by the power of song. There is power in song. Did you realise that? Later on in the... Uh, the history of Israel, there was a period of bad leadership, there were many periods of bad leadership. There was one in particular where King Hezekiah, after some bad leadership, restored worship in the temple. And it tells us in 2 Chronicles 29 that he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps and lyres. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also. And the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel, 
the whole assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshipped. Then later on again in Ezra's time, after the foundation to the temple had been restored, it had been destroyed and the, the Israelites were taken off into captivity. When they returned back to Jerusalem, they laid the foundations of the temple again to begin with the, the rebuilding. And it says, The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And this is what they sang responsively. For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. They sang responsively. Sure, you realise that many of the Psalms were written to be accompanied by flutes or stringed instruments or other types of instruments. So singing to the Lord was a common practice in Old Testament times. In fact, it was commanded in Old Testament times. So let's skip forward a few thousand years to our day. I gather there's been a bit of a battle going on amongst Christians in recent years. Worship wars, I think someone's called them, about what is suitable, appropriate and acceptable songs to use in worship. Some people love the modern songs like we've been singing this morning and aren't they powerful? That Revelation song brings me to tears. The first time, I was just telling Merrily this morning, the first time I heard that song, we were at a, um, a friend's daughter's wedding in a staid old denominational church in the Barossa Valley and I'd never heard that song before and I actually played it at the Christian family and they played that song at the church service, the um, wedding ceremony, and I wanted to get on my knees and weep and raise my hands in worship in the middle of a church, the uh, middle of a wedding ceremony. It's a powerful song. So some people love the modern songs and they wouldn't trade them for the world. But then there's some that are adamant that modern songs are not appropriate. Some say the church should only be singing psalms and nothing else. Some insist even that it should be without instrumental accompaniment. Some sing only hymns. Is there a right and a wrong way to worship God in song? Back in the early 1990s, I visited a church that my sister and her family were part of. It was a fairly conservative denominational church and at the time I was part of a Pentecostal church, so I was used to singing praise and worship choruses, some of which were one verse long that you would sing over and over and over and over again. We rarely sang anything else. We rarely sang any hymns or anything other than the praise and worship choruses. They were, as I say, mostly short songs that had been written in the previous 10 or 20 years for the most part. But at this particular church I visited, we only sang hymns. And the most recent of those hymns was probably written 100 or 150 years before. 
And as I was walking out after the service, I met the pastor, shook his hand, and uh, I asked him if they ever sing choruses at this church. And he replied, and I'll never forget it, because he almost spat it out, we don't worship the Holy Spirit here. I was taken aback, by, partly by the venom of his comment. And uh, I didn't reply at the time, but I got to thinking afterwards, is there something fundamentally wrong with choruses as opposed to hymns? And if the Holy Spirit is God, shouldn't we be worshipping him as well? So it seemed a strange comment. Now that was back in the days when there was very little in between the old hymns and the modern praise and worship choruses, the scripture and song type of stuff. It had only been a few years before that that the likes of Jeff Bullock and Hillsong had started putting out The Power of Your Love and uh, um, uh, Great South Land of the Holy Spirit and songs like that, songs that were much longer and more like the type of stuff we tend to sing today. But for the most part, you either sang choruses or you sang hymns and you didn't really sing much in between. So which is better, choruses or hymns, hymns or choruses? The best of the hymns contain pretty solid theology put to music, to memorable music. Think of Amazing Grace. Everyone knows Amazing Grace. Even unbelievers know Amazing Grace. Think of How Great Thou Art. And I sing that. It's another one. I just want to worship the Lord. Throw my, I, can't, I can't throw my arms wide enough when I sing How Great Thou Art. But there can also be some pretty shallow or confusing hymns or some bad theology in some of the hymns as well. Just because it's old, just because it's much loved, doesn't automatically make it good. In contrast, as I said, the choruses tend to be short, simple and very easy to sing. And there can be plenty of wishy-washy theology in choruses as well. But the best of the choruses are pure scripture put to music. Do you know the old praise and worship chorus, I Exalt Thee? There was one verse which looked like this. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Technically, I suppose there was a second verse to it. I exalt thee. I exalt thee. I exalt thee, O Lord. I exalt thee. I exalt thee. I exalt thee. O Lord, that's it, that's all there is to it. We would sing that over and over again. We'd sing it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes sometimes. The song was written 40 or so years ago. But let me read to you the passage of scripture that inspired it, which was written several hundred years before Christ. And that passage, Psalm 97 verse 9. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted 
far above all gods. That's a simple, simple chorus, but it is pure scripture with a response from us, I exalt thee, O Lord. You could say it's simple and even simplistic, but it's pretty pure. It's the word of God sung, it's the word of God responded to. And as powerful and as moving as amazing grace is, I actually find something as simple as I exalt thee stirs my spirit more. So why do we even sing in church today? We had the example in the Old Testament of how they did it, but why in the modern church? Why since the time of Christ? Is there any biblical command for it? Is there an example there? Is there any expectation or is it something we've just sort of adopted over the years? Paul actually mentions a couple of times in his letters to the early church and he wrote firstly in Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And he wrote to the Ephesians Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. I want to encourage you this morning to recognise that singing songs of worship here on a Sunday morning is more than just a feel-good exercise. In fact, Sunday morning corporate singing is not designed and ordained to make us feel good. Not primarily. Rather, it's an activity that helps to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ, while at the same time ascribing worth and honour and glory to God. Paul told us to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Nothing quite stirs my heart and my love for God like hearing my brothers and sisters lifting their voices in praise and in worship of God. I heard it this morning and it brought me to tears because I could hear my brothers and sisters. It spoke to me through your voices. It brings tears to my eyes and it makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck when I hear my brothers and sisters lifting their hands, worshipping the Lord with abandon. It stirs me to adore him to adore him more and to adore him more freely. And when I see you out of the corner of my eye, with your eyes closed, maybe lifting your hands or kneeling in worship, it makes me weep with joy. The Apostle John wrote in Third John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. And I have few greater joys than seeing and hearing my brothers and sisters delighting in their Lord and Saviour, loving him, worshipping him with body, with soul and with voice. I find my own love for him and my worship of him encouraged and stirred up and enhanced by your expressions of worship. Because you see, 
Congregational worship is not primarily an individual event. Worship is a team sport. Worship is a team sport. It's one of the reasons that I don't personally like dark rooms. I've been encouraging our people in charge of the lighting to leave some of the lights on so that we can see each other responding to the Lord in worship, lifting hands, weeping maybe, kneeling on your faces. We've had people on their faces in worship sometimes in church. It stirs me, it inspires me and I hope it does the same for you. I also don't like thunderously loud music. Volume does not equal anointing. This is not a rock concert where you've come to be entertained. This is where you come to play in a team. Play the sport of worshipping the Lord where we work together as a team. This is a gathering of family where we come to encourage each other. If I can't see you worshipping or can't hear you worshipping, how can I be encouraged by you? I've already alluded, I think, to the fact that some songs are better for church worship than others. But not all songs are equal. In 1974, those of you who are a bit older, as you probably all know the song, Joe Cocker sang a song, You are so beautiful to me. You're everything I hope for. You're everything I need. Most of you probably know that song. In 1993, Rod Stewart recorded, as a Van Morrison number, have, you, have I told you lately that I love you? Have I told you there's no one else above you? That song went to number five on the secular music charts. Both of those songs are beautiful songs, sung with passion, sung with emotion. They stir the heart in a way that few other songs can. It would be easy to imagine that those songs were written to worship God. In fact, the one Rod Stewart sang has a line in there that says, at the end of the day, we should give thanks and pray to the one, to the one. You could imagine that that was written to God and about God and for God, but it wasn't. They're both just merely romantic ballads, which sadly is not entirely unlike some of the modern Christian music that gets used in churches. Some of the so-called worship songs are little more than romantic ballads. From time to time, some of these songs become popular in the Christian church. They sound nice, they sound catchy, but they say precisely zero about God. They say nothing about his great worth. They say nothing about his great works. The worst of these songs could just as easily be sung by Michael or Julie or Harry or Leanne to their girlfriend or boyfriend. They're the Jesus is my boyfriend type of songs. And there was one a little while back, I think, that talked about a big sloppy wet kiss or something. That that doesn't stir me to worship, I've got to say. Songs like that don't qualify as worship. You might feel a bit of a buzz when you sing them with a group of other people. 
you might even uh, mistake that buzz for anointing. But uh, I would suggest that that's not anointing that you're feeling. Something happens when you join voices with hundreds or thousands of other people singing songs. There's an emotional lift that comes when you're singing, particularly singing upbeat songs with other people. But that doesn't mean it's anointing, no matter how good or how spiritual that makes you feel. Because worship is about ascribing worth to God. If a teenage girl could sing the lyrics of a song with heartfelt meaning to her boyfriend, it's not worship. Sadly, we've seen too much of that in the modern church. Can I ask you to be a bit more discerning about the songs you're singing and assuming are worship? Whether you're here on a Sunday, if you're here on a Sunday morning and we're singing songs that you think that doesn't really qualify as worship, it's not saying anything about God, come and talk to me, talk to Merrily about it. If you're at a Christian conference or a major event and they're singing songs like that, be discerning. The things you can actually do with songs like that, which I'll get to a little bit later on. I'm convinced that songs that are truly anointed are songs that focus on Jesus Christ. They don't focus on us. They don't focus on making us feel good. Rather, they're songs that speak clearly and accurately about Jesus Christ. They're songs that lift up and exalt his name. And there is, in my opinion, a reason why songs that focus on Jesus Christ seem to have a special and enduring anointing. There are some songs that go back decades, centuries even, that stir you when you sing them. When Jesus talked to his disciples at the Last Supper, he told them about the coming Holy Spirit and he said to them in John 15:26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And he also said, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit has been sent to witness to Jesus Christ and to glorify him. So when we sing of Jesus Christ, we're joining with the Holy Spirit in his work of witnessing to Jesus and glorifying him. That's why I'm convinced songs that focus on Jesus Christ seem to have a special anointing on them because we're joining the Holy Spirit in what he wants to do. There's a hint there, I think, for worship leaders as they're planning songs for a church meeting. You want to have an anointing on the, the song selection you choose ones that focus on Jesus Christ. And the Holy, it's almost like the Holy Spirit says, if you're going to be lifting up Jesus Christ, you're not doing it without me. I'm going to be part of this because it's his job to do it. Just uh, for your information, though, we examine the lyrics of every song that we sing here at City Edge Church before it gets approved for use in our meetings. We ask a few questions about it. What is this song saying? Who is it about? Is it about God or is it about me? Are the lyrics true? Are the lyrics biblical? 
other lyrics meaningful? There's plenty of pretty good songs out there that uh, have some lines in them that you know are really just a filler because they couldn't think of anything better to write in there. You might remember the song, Did You Feel the Mountains Tremble? An old Matt Redmond number. For the most part, it's a pretty good song. But there's a line in it that says about dancers who dance upon injustice. Now, that song's been around, I'm not sure, 10 or more years. To this day, I don't know what that means. What does it mean, dancers who dance upon injustice? I'm sure he could have worded that in a way that made some sense. But I've never been able to figure out what he's actually saying by that. Then there's other songs that have good lyrics but might contain a questionable word or a questionable idea or phrase. Reckless love is one that that uh, has actually caused a few arguments in the Christian community in recent years. Most of that song lyrically is really very good. But there's one word in there that talks about the reckless love of God that people get upset about and refuse to sing. Understandably, I suppose, to some extent, reckless imply, uh, reckless actually means careless, foolhardy, ill-advised, desperate, rash, hardly terms that we would want to apply to God and his love. So I can understand why some people get upset about that particular word in the song and refuse to sing the rest of the song that is really good. I don't intend to explain the song or make excuses for it except to say that, as I say, the rest of it's pretty good. The whole song speaks truth, powerful truth about God. So it's unfortunate that that one single word ruins it for so many people. But I have to ask... Did the songwriter mean us to understand reckless in terms of foolhardy or desperate or rash? Or is he maybe suggesting from an earthly human perspective that God's love appears reckless? Maybe, maybe not. But if we reject that song because he's singing about the reckless love of God, what do we do with Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? When David wrote that psalm, was he really teaching that God abandons his people? Or was he writing poetry, expressing his perspective and his feelings? Have you ever watched the ABC show Spicks and Specs? They have a quite a humorous show. It's a musical quiz show and uh, they do some funny stuff on there but they have a segment in the show, I've forgotten what they call it, but um, one of the panellists has to get up with a book that's totally unrelated to anything and sing three songs using the words in that book. So it can be three songs that are chosen for them and they have to sing it, it might be a book on horticulture or a novel, a Moby Dick or something like that and they have to sing those words but with this tune and the other panellists have to guess what that tune is, what song is they're singing. It's quite funny and I really struggle. 
I know the tune, but for the life of me, I cannot figure out what the song is. Christian music is not Gruden's systematic theology put to music. Christian worship songs are an attempt to express our heart of love for God. It needs to be said that many, many songs contain a word, a phrase or an idea that we can judge and criticise. I looked up about some of the hymns and six or ten hymns they recommend you don't sing and most of them contained one tiny little idea in the midst of what was a pretty good hymn and they said, you can't sing this anymore. One of them had something about uh, pre-millennial versus amillennial theology or something. And this line suggests premillennialism, and premillennialism is out of favour now. Therefore, do not sing that hymn. Give me a break. People write thousand-page theology books trying to accurately explain God and they still fail to teach everything there is to know about God in thousands and thousands of pages volumes and volumes cannot explain everything there is to know about God so is it, is it unrealistic to expect a song to teach everything there is to know about God of course it is is it unrealistic to expect a song one verse or three or four verses to contain the breadth and the depth of theology that describes God, man and salvation accurately. Of course it is. He cannot fit everything into a little song. Same as they cannot fit everything about God into a 1,500, 5,000 page book about him. Having said that, I do think the term reckless is an unfortunate choice of words. He could have chosen relentless or mighty or persistent or some other word that may not have flowed quite nicely in the song but it would have provoked less controversy. So it's not to say I think we should stop being discerning about the songs we sing. We should be discerning about them. I think we should think carefully about what the song is teaching. But there are things we can do if we don't agree with the word or the thought. On the side note, some churches refuse to sing anything except the Psalms. They would argue that nothing else has been prescribed by God in the Bible for us to use in worship. And uh, I have some sympathy with that choice. We actually sang a psalm this morning and I love it because it's the pure words of scripture. But it also means you'd be singing a lot of stuff about being abandoned by God and a lot of complaints to God about him not listening to us because the Psalms are full of that sort of stuff. And while I'm on the subject of churches that sing only the Psalms, I'm not sure what Psalms, what those churches do with Paul's command to us to speak to one another with Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Are they excluding what Paul has commanded in the New Testament then? Now I'll also point out that if we sing only psalms, we never actually lift up the name of Jesus in song because none of the psalms name him. So what can we do? 
either as worship leaders or as a congregation with songs that we don't necessarily agree with. John Piper, as always, has done an excellent job addressing this particular subject in the Ask Pastor John uh, podcast that he produces, and, uh, and he dealt with the Reckless Love song in particular. Highly recommend you track it down online. You can get it online or with your podcast player. But we have three basic options if we're asked to sing a song we don't agree with either in part or in full. We can either choose not to sing it at all. We can change the words in there, like reckless, that we struggle with. Or we can make up our own words to the whole song, if we want, to sing to God. As worship leaders, we also have a fourth option. We can take the time to talk about the word reckless. Explain it to our congregation so they understand that as we're singing this song, the term reckless may not mean that we're saying God has not taken into account the effects of his love. But it's from an earthly perspective, maybe. We can do those sorts of things uh, to deal with songs that we struggle with. As I said, as worship leaders here at City Edge Church, there's a number of tests that we apply to a song before we prove it for singing. We don't just sing them because they've hit number one in the Christian top 40 charts. We don't just sing them because they have a catchy tune or a nice verse in there. The first test we apply is how true are the lyrics. Do they speak accurately about God? And that, of course, is the problem so many people have with the reckless love song because God is not reckless. And does the song draw our attention, our focus towards Jesus Christ? Or does it focus on us? Does it focus on our feelings? Some songs, obviously, are much better than others in this. And I've got to say, I actually find songs that focus on Jesus Christ make me feel better. Sometimes they make me weep, as the Revelation song did this morning, overcome with some powerful emotion. But it also makes me feel better. Does the song say anything of substance? Not only must it be true, it must also say something worthwhile. Some songs can be pretty vague and wishy-washy. Wishy-washy lyrics are not worth singing. For this reason, I refuse to sing the la-la-la-la-la parts of some songs. Some people know that of me. And uh, in fact, when Rhonda used to be up here as one of the, the singers or leading the worship, she would sometimes sing a song that had a la-la-la line and she'd look at me when we got to that line <laughs> with a smile on her face. It doesn't say anything. I'll either not sing it or I'll replace it with words that exalt Jesus Christ which is my preferred option. If you see me not singing at some stage, it isn't because I disagree necessarily with the lyrics. It may be that I'm overcome like this morning. Half of the songs I couldn't sing this morning because the Spirit of God was just touching me so deeply and I was overcome with emotion. Another test is, is the song singable congregationally? Have you ever noticed that not every Christian song is really suitable for singing in a group with a, with a group of other people. They just don't seem to work in a group setting. One of my favourite songs, Christian songs, is, uh, is a difficult one to sing 
in a group setting. It's a Rich Mullins song called Creed. It's not the creed we do from time to time here. It's actually the old Nicene Creed, I think it is. Word for word virtually, a couple of words modernised, but word for word and put to music. Powerful, powerful song, but really difficult to sing in a church setting. Unfortunately. The closer a song, song sticks to scripture, the easier it will be to pass these tests. And that's why I love that Psalm 145 song that we did this morning. It's not all that easy to sing, but gee, it's a powerful song lyrically because it is the pure word of God. Slightly modernised, updated, personalised a little bit. But when we first started doing it with the overhead, you'll notice we had the lyrics down one side and the psalm, the actual psalm down the right-hand side, I think it was, of the screen, and it was word-for-word match virtually, or thought-for-thought match at best. It's one of the things, one of the strengths of the old scripture in song songs that we used to do, the praise and chorus ones in years gone by, so many of them were just the pure word of scripture, like I exalt thee song. Sadly, they're considered old and daggy in the modern, sophisticated church. So it's my conviction that the songs we sing at church must be true. They must be biblical if we're going to use them for worship here at City Edge Church. And part of the reason for that is that I recognise that no matter how much importance is placed on the preaching of the word, no matter how much we're determined to listen to the word and get something out of it, you probably won't remember most of what I say today. If someone asks you this evening probably, oh, what did Ian preach on tonight? You might be scratching your head thinking, oh, gee, I know he preached for a long time but I can't remember what it was. But you know what you probably will be doing? You'll be singing some of these songs this week. I sing them three o'clock in the morning when I wake up. There'll be one of, the, one of the songs we did at church on Sunday going through my mind over and over again. If that's bad theology, what am I teaching myself? What am I filling my spirit with? It's desperately important that we make sure the songs we sing are accurate biblically, that they say the right stuff about God. They say stuff about God, at least. They're not vague because that will get into our spirit. It will cement truth about God into your spirit. There's another trap besides singing meaningless songs that we have to be on our guard against. Some people come to church, and I doubt whether any of you fall into this category, but some people come to churches looking to be entertained, looking for the musos to put on a performance for them. You want to be entertained? Go to a Rolling Stones concert or Lady Gaga or whoever the latest uh, teen sensation is. Go to them for entertainment. We're not here to be entertained. We're here to engage in team sport. We're here to worship God together. If you walk out of here on a Sunday morning thinking what a great band we have, and we do, if you walk out thinking what a great band we have or conversely thinking I didn't get much out of the worship this morning you've missed the point. The point is not to come here and be entertained and to get something out of the worship. The point is what can I give? What can I offer up? 
to the King of Kings, the Lord to Lord of Lords. What can I offer from my heart, from my spirit, with my voice to him? And how can I encourage my brothers and sisters that are sitting here with me as I lift him up? Now I've chosen to focus mostly on the congregational singing part of our worship and uh, because that's the most publicly visible way that we worship. And it's also the one we think most of when we think of worship. It's important that we get our congregational worship right because it tells other people what we think of Jesus Christ. It tells them how much worth we place on him. I've said virtually nothing about personal singing as worship, but you can and should be worshipping God with songs during your private quiet times, when you're in the car, when you're laying in bed at night. It honours him and it builds you up. And if you've chosen your songs well, it cements truth about God in your heart. But that's not all there is to say about worship. For if worship is about ascribing worth to God, then worship is much, much more than just singing. It's much bigger even than putting on a Christian CD, closing your eyes, loving God, getting lost in the moment. Worship should be a way of life for us. The verse I opened this message with this morning tells us just that. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Worship is so much more than just singing songs on a Sunday morning. It's more than singing hymns or choruses in the car on your way to work. Worship is an attitude of the heart. It's the way we approach it's the way we should approach all of life. Even the boring and often frustrating act of working. There's another passage of scripture where Paul says, slaves or bond servants there, obey your human masters in everything. Not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your, your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever we do, even working for a harsh boss in a job we hate, should be done as an act of service and an act of worship to the Lord. It should be done as an offering to him. Our home life can be an act of worship, should be an act of worship. Our recreation can and should be an act of worship. Whatever you do, do it as for the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ. Even playing sport, believe it or not, can be an act of worship. Those who know the true story of Chariots of Fire would know that Eric Little was one of the greatest runners of his time. He was the Olympic medal favourite. But he ran not primarily because he was fast, 
but because he felt the pleasure of God when he rang. Eric Little ran as an act of worship. When they scheduled an Olympic race that he was favourite to win on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day, he refused to run because he was running to honour and worship his Lord, not for his own personal success. That's an attitude of worship in his sport. Imagine if we viewed our work as boring, meaningless, frustrating and stressful as it is. Imagine if we viewed our work in the same way Eric Little viewed his running gift. Not as a way for us to make money or to work up the corporate ladder and achieve power, but firstly and mostly as a way to ascribe worth to God, to honour him. Do you think you might look at your job a little differently if you approached it as an act of worship? I think we all would. don't know if you've ever given any thought to the things I've talked about this morning. Have you ever thought about worship as something we do not firstly for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others? And not only for the benefit of others, but to acknowledge the great worth of God. If you haven't, don't feel bad. You're not alone. Most Christians never give it a second thought, I suspect. But I hope and I pray that you'll take it to heart. Our worship should be a way of life, not a once a week event. Every activity should be performed with a desire to honour our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. What if this attitude of worship permeated even our TV watching? That sounds like it would be tough to do. But do you think it might influence what you watch? Is it possible even to watch TV worshipfully? That's maybe stretching the bounds of worship, is it? It probably is because we've been conditioned to just accept anything that comes on the screen in front of us and watch it uncritically. But we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, as our spiritual act of worship. That verse tells us that it's possible to sit in front of a TV worshipfully. How you do it in practice, I'm not entirely sure. But Romans 12.1 tells us we can because we're to do all of our life that way. And any life that is lived as an act of worship will be a life that conforms more and more every day to the image of Jesus Christ. He's the one, he's the only one who is worthy of worship. We're going to finish off this morning by singing that simple little chorus based on Psalm 97 that uh, for thou O Lord art high above all the earth Beryl's going to lead us in that and uh, while she's coming up the rest of the team are coming up we'll close in prayer but I want to encourage you this morning to lift your voices as we sing this song it's a simple song it's not a hard one to remember it's not a hard one to sing but lift your voices to the one who is worthy of worship.
Just before we sing that, would you close your eyes for a moment? Heavenly Father, your word tells us that the kind of worshippers that you seek are those who will worship you in spirit and truth. We ask today, Lord, that by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, we might worship you with all our hearts. Keep us, Lord, from coming before you with only empty words, meaningless songs and unexamined lives. Awaken us to the joy of worshipping you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. May we worship you for who you truly are. And we proclaim, Lord, with the angels, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, you are worthy to receive the glory and honour and praise and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. To you, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Lord, may these songs of heaven become the songs of our hearts. Open our eyes, Lord, to the greatness of your glory. May we be awestruck in your presence. Teach us, teach us, Lord, to become passionate worshippers. Teach us to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us, Lord, to exalt him not only with our words but with our lives also. May your Holy Spirit be present amongst us in power as we worship. May he move freely amongst us and may our hearts be wide open to his work. May we worship and may we live our lives in such a way that the Lordship of Jesus Christ is more firmly established in us and may we be conformed more into the image of Christ daily. In his name we pray. Amen. We stand and join as we exalt the Lord. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.